We are going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. And it's not just because it's, it's a book of the Bible. It's because it's the, personal, it's the personal account, testimony account, of a guy who knew Jesus really, really well. A guy who has been changed by Jesus. A guy whose life was completely different because of Jesus. A guy named Matthew, a tax collector, who had betrayed his people but found the grace of God. And, and he's giving us this, this firsthand eyewitness account of what it would be like to see Jesus' ministry uh, when he was on this earth. And, man, it has just been fantastic. Last week uh, we were in uh, a passage talking about how Jesus is doing something new. It's Jesus as he's interacting with John the Baptist's disciples. And they're like, hey, how come you guys don't fast? We fast. And Jesus is like, I'm doing something new. And it doesn't look like religion. It looks like relationship. And it looks like God opening your heart, expanding your mind, bringing his goodness, bringing his grace. And it's powerful and it's different. And today, right, from, right out of that interaction, Jesus goes on uh, to show us how he is the answer. And so if you're taking notes today, that's the title of the message. I want you to, if you have your phone, do you have a piece of paper, write that on the top of it. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer. And uh, when, I, when, I, when I say the word the answer, of course I think about Jesus because he is the answer, but I also think about another person because I'm a fan of the National Basketball Association. I think about, anybody know who I'm talking about? Allen Iverson. Thank you. One person. Wow. Maybe not a lot of basketball fans today. Uh, Anybody remember AI, Ellen Iverson? This illustration is not going to hit. Okay, that's cool. Um, I'm going to tell it anyways. All right. He had great handles. <laughs> he had great handles. He had a killer shot. He broke a bunch of ankles. I mean, literally, if you go, like, look at his highlights, man, he was incredible. He just made people miss all the time. And he had an answer for everything. That was his nickname. Except for one thing. He didn't have an answer for one thing. Anybody know what it was? Practice. Come on, somebody. Yeah, if you, need, you don't know that, you got to go Google it. It's awesome. When Jesus has an answer for practice, he's got an answer for everything. And you know who Alan Iverson is, so that illustration doesn't matter. Anyways, Jesus matters, though, and he is the answer. I want you to know that today. I want you to know that Jesus is the answer. So whatever questions you have, Jesus has the answer. Whatever issues you are going through, Jesus is the answer. Whatever struggles you are facing, whatever difficulties you are experiencing, I want you to know this, that there is an answer, and his name is Jesus, and he is alive, and he is moving, and he wants to bring answers to the challenges that we face. And that's what our passage in Matthew chapter 9 shows us today. Matthew chapter 9, it's, I want to walk through this amazing passage of Scripture. We're going to look at a couple different characters, that are going to teach us a lot about who Jesus is and how Jesus is, in fact, the answer. So we're going to walk through, make some observations, and then we'll, we'll have some conclusions and then pray uh, at the end. If you're ready to jump in, say, I am. All right, let's do this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, okay, right, again, right out of the interaction he had with John's disciples, two blind men followed him. Let's pause for a moment, put ourselves into the story. Let's put ourselves into the moment 2,000 years ago, two blind people are following Jesus. Uh, that would have been, being blind would be obviously a significant experience, significant tragic experience. It'd be very difficult today, but it was even more difficult at that time, more difficult then. There were no resources, and there were a lot more people who were uh, blind just because of some of the hygiene that had taken place at births. There were more people who were born blind in that day. And it basically meant this. 
that your life was going to be as a beggar. Because you, you couldn't work. There wasn't much that you could do. So if you didn't work, you didn't eat. And so life was reduced to begging. And obviously, this would, you would want to do this in a place where most people were. Most people were high traffic areas, a lot of people hanging out, people going somewhere. So they would congregate. There'd be multiple beg, uh, blind beggars together, and they would help each other. They would help each other get to where each other were going, and that's kind of where the phrase blind leading the blind comes from. In fact, we know that Jesus talks about the Pharisees in this way, right? He talks about the Pharisees being blind guides. And so this is referring to something that actually happened. It would happen often. And so you have two of these blind people who have buddied up, and they, we don't know how they find Jesus. We don't know how they know about Jesus, but they start following Jesus. They grab each other's arms and they start following Jesus. Through the crowds, they, they maybe they hear him, they know that he's there, and they start following him. And the thing that hits me first about this is such a beautiful thought is that following Jesus is really simple. That's a good place for an amen. You can just throw that out. Following Jesus is simple. It's simple. It really is. You don't, you don't, it's not complicated. You don't need a Bible degree to follow Jesus. You don't need to have books read to follow Jesus or verses memorized. You don't need to have all your stuff together. Praise the Lord. Come on, somebody. You don't need to be able to do cool things or say fancy prayers or see visions or see it all. All you have to do is be willing to follow Jesus. You just got to know that he is the answer. And as you start moving towards him, he starts changing you. We talk about this all the time. That as you follow God, as you, as you move in his direction, he starts doing stuff inside of you. He starts working things out. He starts fixing things up. He starts calling you forward into all that he has for you. That's the power of following Jesus. And you don't need a degree to do it. You just need to start following him. You just need to realize that he is the answer. And you got to start following him. And he will change you from the inside out. Let me just take a moment and say this. If you don't know Jesus today, it is by far the greatest thing that you could ever experience in this world. It will change your life both now and forever. It will change you from the inside out. And as you move towards him, as you say yes to him, he will save you and he will change you. He will give you heaven in the future, but he will bring heaven to earth in your life right here and right now. And he is worth following. Come on, somebody. He really is. He really is. So these guys start following Jesus, and it says two blind men followed him, and they're calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, how are they following Jesus? This is, I mean, they're two blind people. So we just got to, like, let our imaginations fill in the gaps here. Two blind people, maybe they hear Jesus' voice. Like, I think he's over there now. I think he's over there now. Maybe one of the disciples has a distinct odor. You know, they just know, like, hey, that's, that's definitely Peter. He's heading in that direction. I don't, know how, I don't know how they're following Jesus, but they're following Jesus, and they're calling out, have mercy on us. Now, this is not the first time that they've said those words, for sure. I mean, they've said this a lot. They are professional beggars. But it's probably not often that they start chasing after somebody. And the reason is, is because this isn't just anybody. This is, as they say, the son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, just, let's just pause for a moment. Why would they say that? I mean, 
Why, I mean, a lot of times in that day, you would be known by your father. So you'd be called son of and whoever your father was. That's, that's, that's what your name was. People would call you that. But they're saying son of David. And I think the question all of us are asking is, have they never seen a nativity before? <laughs> Do they not know the stories? It's Mary and right come on they've of course they've got to know the story it's mary and joseph not mary and david why are they calling him son of david what are they saying when they say these words they are saying you are the one who was prophesied to sit on david's throne so back when king david was becoming king god had made him promises God has said there will never fail to be someone who sits on your throne, a descendant of yours who sits on the throne. So he had made promises, and, and, yet, and yet that had long gone. And so that, that physically had not happened, but what it was, it was pointing to a spiritual reality that would come. And the prophets throughout the Old Testament start weaving all of these ideas together, and they understand that although there is not a king from David sitting on the throne, that one day there will be a king, and he will be the king of kings. And his rulership will never end. It will begin, but it will never end. He will reign forever, and when he shows up, he is going to bring a new kingdom, a better kingdom, a kingdom of God. Oh, and here we are in Matthew. And it all just ties together because that's what Matthew was trying to get us to understand. Isn't this beautiful? What is the kingdom that Jesus will bring? Well, go back to some of these Old Testament prophets, prophets that talk about this in Isaiah 42. Here's one of them. I mean, we could spend an entire message just talking about this. But I want to show you why these guys are excited, why these, why these guys who are blind are excited about Jesus showing up. Look at Isaiah 42. This is talking about the Messiah the son of David. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand and I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Oh, isn't this beautiful language? Come on, church, just pause for a moment. This is beautiful language, a covenant with God. Us walking in relationship with God where we call him God and he calls us his people. This is beautiful. This is relational language. Do you see how this ties into what we talked about last week, how God is bringing something new? In fact, in Isaiah 43, he says, see, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? So all of these things tie very closely together. But let's keep reading in Isaiah 42. He says, I will cause you to be a light to the Gentiles. What To do what? To open eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Ooh, what a great promise. What a great prophecy if you happen to be blind. What a, what a great promise if you happen to be bound. And so these people, for generations, the nation of Israel is waiting, waiting for this Messiah, waiting for this promised one, waiting for this son of David to show up and to bring something new about that they've never seen before, where people whose eyes are blind can see, and oh, they think that they've found him. So they call him the son of David. They're saying, it's you, Jesus. We know it. We can tell. There's too many things that line up. We know, even though we can't see physically, we see with our 
with our mind's eye. We see with our spirit, and we know that you are the Messiah. You are the son of David. You are the promised one, and we are asking you for mercy. But it almost seems like Jesus is ignoring them. You've got to think about it. They're calling out. Jesus is in front. They're following him. They're holding, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. But Jesus doesn't turn around. Look what happens, verse 28. When he had gone indoors, Jesus is playing a divine game of hide and seek, everybody. And it's kind of cruel because they're blind. Can we just be honest for a moment? Just, it's not fair. It's not fair. You ever play Marco Polo? Anybody, come on, just raise your hand if you ever played Marco Polo, okay? This is the original first century version. Except instead of Marco Polo, it's Jesus Christ. Can you just imagine, like, just think about it. Jesus! He said, Christ. I, I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> he's obviously, he's obviously not, like, responding right away. What is he doing? Why, why is he doing this? I, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but I believe that he's drawing out their faith. I believe he's wanting to continue to see if they really are believing him to be who they say they are believing him to be. And so we'll unpack this in a moment, but verse 28, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him. I mean, these guys are persistent. I mean, they're pretty good. They're pretty good at hide and seek. Let's just be honest. Because they find him indoors. How do they do that? And watch what Jesus asked them. He says, do you believe? Everybody say believe. Really important word right here. He says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Again, now, I will never criticize Jesus, his ways, or his methods, but this seems to me, in the natural, like a pretty ridiculous question to ask. People who have really gone to great lengths to find you, calling you the son of David, and now you're asking them, do you believe? They're like, "Uh, I think we've proven that. I think we've demonstrated it. Why is Jesus asking? He wants to hear them say it. He wants them to put their mouth where their faith is. There's something powerful about our words. There's something powerful about actually saying it. Uh, Paul the Apostle will say this in Romans, that we believe in our heart and then confess with our mouth. That's how we're saved. So it's how we experience God, but it's also how we pray. We've, we've hit this sometimes uh, over the last several months. Talking about the importance of verbalizing our prayers. It's not, it's not just enough to think you need God. It's not just enough to worry that you need God or obsess over your situation. What God wants us to do is actually pray about it. Actually open our mouths and let our prayers be heard. There is a power that happens there. You see it all throughout the Bible. Only two prayers in the entire Bible are not prayed out loud. Most of it is spoken word, and what Jesus is saying is, I want to hear you say it. And these guys respond with a simplicity of faith. They say, yes, Lord. Everybody say, yes, Lord. Two good words to say. Two good words to say, yes, Lord. You can have your way. I believe I'm in 100%. You're the thing. I'm following you. I'm in on your team. This isn't about me. This is about you. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes and said, according to your, come on, everybody say it with me. Faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was 
restored. What had never been done before in history, blind eyes seeing, Jesus does. And he's bringing all of these messianic promises online. How sweet. How beautiful. Why can Jesus do these things? Because he is, in fact, the son of David. He is, in fact, the king of kings. He is, in fact, the one who will reign forever. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He has come, and he will come again, church. You can take it to the bank. Jesus warns them after doing this great miracle. Think about this. They're blind. They never see anything. Blind from birth, most probably. They never see anything. And the first thing they see is the face of Jesus. It's beautiful. And Jesus warns them, see to it that no one knows about this. He says, shh. Don't go tell anybody about me. That's usually not what we say in church, right? Usually you're like, no, go tell everybody. Tell everybody about him. Be a light to the world. Why is Jesus doing this? We don't know. Maybe it's, you seem, it seems to be with Jesus that he's very aware of the times. He's very aware of like, uh, even when he does the miracle with, uh, of the water into wine. Mary comes, he says, my time has not yet come. He's very aware that once the messianic clock starts ticking, he doesn't want to advance that too quickly. He's got things that he needs to do before he ultimately goes there, before he goes to the cross. So it seems like he's saying, hey, don't, don't tell anybody about this. And of course, these guys do exactly what Jesus asked, right? No, they don't. They, but they went out and spread news about him all over that region. Classic. Classic Christians, right? Doing what Jesus tells us not to do. Verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So you have these blind people who see this demon-possessed person who can't talk is healed and the crowd is like, this is amazing. Isn't it beautiful to see God on the move? Isn't it beautiful to see God start working in people's hearts and lives? And isn't it beautiful to see something like Serve Day where people will get up on a Saturday and actually go make a difference for somebody else's life? Isn't it beautiful to see when God touches people, when God answers prayer, when we see testimonies come, testimonies come rolling in? Isn't it beautiful when God is at work? It makes us say, wow, God, you are real. And you are moving. And everybody gets saved when that happens. Not quite. Because our good friends, the Pharisees, find a way to have a problem with this. Verse 34. But the Pharisees said, it is, uh, it's by the prince of demons. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That he dries out demons. That's how he's doing this. There's no way. There's no way that's God. No way that God wants to cast demons out of people. It's crazy. This passage shows us three different interactions, three different perspectives, and all of it helps us understand how to find the answer who is in fact Jesus. Three thoughts, if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, your need can lead you to the answer. 
Your pride can keep you from the answer, and your faith is the way you will experience the answer. Your need can lead you to the answer. Your pride will keep you from the answer, and your faith is the way you will experience the answer. I want to unpack this today just for a few moments, apply it to our life, and then we'll have some time of prayer at the end, and I I pray that we all walk away better. Before we do, I want you to find 16 people next to you. Come on, just tell them, Jesus is the answer you're looking for. Come on, tell 16 people in front of you, behind you, to the side of you, Jesus is the answer that you're looking for. I love the Bible. I love how clear it is. This is so beautiful. But watch what he says. I mean, watch the point that Jesus is making and Matthew is making sure we see. And it's this, that your need can lead you to the answer. These guys, these blind guys, it's tragic. They can't see. It's terrible. Wouldn't wish it on anyone. And yet they are the people who first see Jesus for who he is. And the reason they are able to see Jesus for who he is is because they are blind. (laughs) Think about that for a moment. Their blindness has put them in a place to meet Jesus. In a place they may not have been if they had not been blind. Right? What if they weren't blind? Would they be just chilling, living their life, doing other things? But because they're blind, they see Jesus come by, and because they need something, they reach out for Jesus. And because they reach out for Jesus, they find him and have a miracle happen in their life. See how that works? If we don't need Jesus or if we're not aware of our need of Jesus, we never reach out for him, and then he never does anything in our life. But sometimes, I believe this, God doesn't cause our pain God doesn't bring our pain into us. I don't believe that. God brings goodness. God brings healing to us. But sometimes God will allow us to have situations that are overwhelming, that are difficult, to step into things that we need help with that only he can do. Sometimes God will allow that situation to dominate us in a way that makes life very uncomfortable so that we reach out for God and find him and have him do a miracle in our life. Because comfort is not the answer. Can we just pause for a moment, just think about that? Comfort is not the answer. Like like having all of our stuff together is not the answer because if you gain the whole world, Jesus will say this himself, if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul, what good is that? No, no, you can have all the comfort in the world and yet if you miss Jesus, you've missed everything. You've missed the point of all of this. And so sometimes God will allow us to have pain. He'll allow us to go through difficult situations because that need can lead us back to him. This goes back to everything, uh, what we talked about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about how blessed are the poor in spirit. It, that's the first beatitude, and it's the key to experiencing the kingdom. It's the key to that unlocks everything else about God. It's realizing that you need God. See, the person who thinks they don't need God, they never find him, do they? They never find him because there has to be this, there has to be this thing inside you that says, you know what, maybe I do. And the reality is, you do. I do. We all do. And sometimes our needs help us realize that. Let me just, let me pause for a moment. Let's personalize this. 
What is the thing that is making your life uncomfortable right now? What is the thing that is difficult about your situation? What is the thing that's difficult about, if you, if you could change anything, you'd be like, oh, I would change this in a heartbeat. Man, I wish this would go away. I want you to just maybe flip your perspective on that for a moment. Maybe that one thing is not keeping you from blessing, it's actually bringing you to blessing. Maybe that thing that you're really upset about that you wish you could just, oh, if this would just go away, maybe it's not, not actually making your life worse. It could be just making your life better because it got you up and it got you to church this morning. Because it's going to bring you forward to the end as we get ready to pray. And you're going to say, you're going to lift, look to God. And maybe you're going to experience God in a special way, in a way that you would have never experienced him before if you had not gone through it. Sometimes our need will lead us to the answer. But our pride will keep us from the answer. Our pride will keep us from the answer. Look at this. This is so, I love the Bible. It's so beautiful. The blind people can see, and the Pharisees who can see can't see. <laughs> the dichotomy is crazy. The guys who can't see see who Jesus is and tell the whole world about it. And the guys who can see all of this happening right in front of them can't see it because they explain it away. Because they're set in their ways. Anybody know someone who's set in their ways? Anybody know someone who refuses to listen to reason? Anybody ever been in a disagreement with somebody who cannot clearly see the obvious truth that is right in front of them? Elbows are flying in the rows right now. Keep those elbows to yourself. Come to the marriage class on Tuesday night. These are the Pharisees. These are the Pharisees. They have their idea of who God is, and yet when God shows up, they can't see him. They can't deny the miracle because everybody's there like, okay, that guy, he couldn't talk, and he was demon-possessed, and now he can talk, and he's no longer demon-possessed. So they can't deny it, but they also can't say that Jesus is the son of God, so they have to say that he is the devil. Why? Because they are full of pride. They're saying, I can't be wrong, so he has to be wrong. I mean, how big of a miss is this? I mean, it's one thing to not realize that Jesus is the Christ. It's a whole other thing to call him the devil. It doesn't get any more wrong than that. And yet they were convinced they were right. Why? Because of their pride. Church, this will preach. When the other person is the problem all of the time, we have to at least be open to the fact that we could be missing something. Right? As the great poet and philosopher Taylor Swift says, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. It's me. <laughs> Some of you, that's the only thing you're going to remember from the sermon today. You're just going to be like, I think you said something about Taylor Swift. But we have to start here. We have to start here. Man, it could be me. It could be me. I could be wrong. 
I could be missing it. We have to be willing to, to own our sin, our mistakes, our faults, and admit that there might be, in this great realm of possibility, something that we're not seeing because of our pride. I just want to camp, on, camp out on this for a moment, church, because it's so easy to see pride in others, yet it's so difficult to see in ourselves. Pride, pride is the root of all sin. It's, it's why this whole thing got sidetracked in the beginning. It's what cost the devil heaven. Pride. He said, I will send to heaven. It's what cost Eve, or caused Eve, to take the forbidden fruit. It's what caused Adam just to sit there while it happened. It's what caused Aaron to make a golden image for the people of Israel. And it's what caused the people of Israel to worship that golden image. Pride is what caused Joseph to brag about his coat and his dreams. And then pride is what caused his brothers to sell him in to slavery. Do you see the theme here? Pride is what kept David back when everybody else was fighting the war. He said, ah, you know what, I don't need to do that. I'm, a, I'm above that now. I'm, I'm beyond that now. And pride is what allowed him to commit adultery and murder and think that he could get away with it. Pride is what caused his son Solomon to think he could manage 700 wives. Come on, that dude just had some problems. I mean, I mean, he was just asking for it. Come on, somebody, you know. And pride is what caused him to worship those wives' false gods, ultimately dividing the nation into pride. Everywhere it shows up, it messes everything up. In fact, the only Bible character to not fall victim to it is the one who can help us overcome it, Jesus, the son of David. Let me just, for a moment, Philippians chapter 2, can we just, Paul's trying to encourage us. He says, in your relationships with others, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was willing, the son of God, the perfect one, the, the only one who didn't really need to be humble, was in fact humble. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what did God do? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of honor. And yet... He humbles himself. Why? Because this is God's way. And this is the way to God. Humbling ourselves, recognizing we are not the answer. I just want to do a little pride check, church, just for a quick moment. Have you allowed yourself to be the answer in your life? Have you believed the lie? Because the devil's going to be speaking that lie. No, you're right. No, you got that. No, they're wrong. You don't need God. The devil will be speaking those lies to you all day long. 
But you have to humble yourself and say, you know what, God, I need you. God, I, I desperately, desperately need you. Your way is best. Your way is the way, and I'm choosing it because I don't want my pride to keep me from the answer. Your need can bring you to the answer. Your pride will keep you from the answer, but praise God, your faith will help you experience the answer. These guys, they're blind beggars. Not much lower in society of a position than that. You weren't good for much. You didn't bring much to the table, and yet Jesus freely gives them their sight. Why? Because he is good and because they believed. Both of those things working into, in, 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 in harmony. Again, verse 28, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied, according to your faith, let it be done unto you. Check this out. Why did they get healed? It wasn't about who they were. It wasn't about their past. It wasn't even about the mood Jesus was in or was not in. It was about their faith. The miraculous happens because of their faith. It is so beautiful and so simple. All we need to bring is faith. You don't have to be perfect to follow Jesus and experience a miracle from him. You don't have to have all your stuff together as we talked about. You don't have to graduate from some Bible school. You don't have to do all of that. You don't have to be a perfect person. You don't have to be a perfect Pharisee. Like Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. You don't have to do that in order to be able to experience God. You just have to follow him and say, have mercy on him and believe that he is, in fact, the way. That's it. Grace through faith, and God will do the miraculous in our lives. Check this out. Three different people. The Pharisees, they say, this can't be God. The crowd says, this might be God. This is cool. And the blind men say, this is God. Who experiences the miracle? The person who is convinced because they have faith. You know, there's a phrase, seeing is believing. It's not right. It's not right. Seeing is not believing. How many of you know you could have all these miracles happen and you could have them documented, you could see pictures of it, you could still deny it? Oh, that was Photoshopped. Nah, they, they did some stuff in post-production to make that. I mean, that's what we do. We explain it away. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. As your faith is, so be it unto you. What do you need God for? What do you need God for today? God wants to move. He wants to work in our hearts. And I believe he wants to respond today. Would you stand with me all across this place? I believe that God wants to give us examples and opportunities to apply this all the time. I think he gave us one yesterday as a church. As we are getting ready for serve day, I was uh, having my prayer time early in the morning. Jeremy calls me. He's like, hey, we've got some issues with the pallet or the convoy stuff. Didn't come in. We don't have it, you know. And so it's down at this warehouse and we can't get in. The managers are gone. The, the, there's truck drivers there, but there's no managers. And he's like, so we're going to divide up the people and we'll just maybe do the convoy stuff another time. And I was like, 
okay, that's a good plan B, but let's believe God for plan A. It's like, Jeremy, can you head that way? Just go down there. Just go down there. We're just gonna see what God can do. And then I called Roger and I was like, Roger, can you grab the truck? Just head that way (laughs) in faith. And as soon as I got done with making those phone calls, I sat down and I was like, God, I believe you want us to do those hygiene kits for people who need them. I believe that you can open doors. I believe that you can get a manager there on his day off. And God, I'm praying that you do it. And so I prayed that prayer. I said, God, not for my glory, but for the glory of your name. Jeremy gets there, he finds a driver. He's like, yeah, I'll call the manager. Manager's like, it's my day off. And Jeremy's like, I know, but we've got people who need packets. He goes, I'll be there in 45 minutes. Come on, somebody. Jeremy was so excited. We called me. He's actually coming. He's actually coming. I was like, let's go. And, uh, and so Roger's on his way. We know it's all going to happen. So he had to move three trailers out of the way, had to pull all these pallets off the truck to get to our pallet. He's doing all of it. So Roger's like, hey, thank you so much. Anything we can pray for you about? He goes, actually, I'm going through a very difficult situation. He goes, actually, Actually, I'm going through a very difficult situation. He goes, my wife just left us, me and my autistic son, who Roger was helping, holding, while he was kind of freaking out during the whole thing. And so he goes, he goes, I- I'm going through a d- difficult situation. Roger's like, can we pray for you? Big dude, 6'4", 250, just big old guy. Roger lays his hands, he starts bawling. Roger prays for him, encourages him, maybe the greatest miracle that happened. We were loving our neighbor even before we were loving our neighbor. Come on, somebody. That's what it's all about. And I'm just saying this because I believe God wants to do this every single day. I use that example because I believe God wants to do every single day. God wants to show up in your life. He wants to do miracles. He wants to show up. He wants to make himself known. He wants to show his, he wants to show off. As your faith is, so be it unto you.